0: The Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio present Savor 2014, an American craft beer and food experience from Washington, D.C. This recording was from Saturday, May 10th. Private Tasting Salon, Revolution Brewing, the best of Barrel Aid. Featuring Jim Seback and Josh Deep from Revolution Brewing.
1: Okay, welcome to the last uh the last salon of the evening and of the seventh year of Savor, a craft beer and food experience put on by the Brewers Association, which is awesome because this is a non-profit organization who promotes small craft and independent brewers. So tonight we're going to be doing uh, barrel aging. I am Drew Larson. I'm going to be your moderator tonight. I'm with the Cicerone certification program, completely independent of what's going on here. Um, So I want to also thank Spiegelau, who's making an IPA now. They have made this room possible for us tonight. So throughout tonight, you are welcome to ask questions as we go along. Throw up your hand. I'll run over to you with a mic because we're going to be recording tonight uh, audio, not video. Don't worry. You don't have to hide your faces. But we're going to be recording audio. So even though the acoustics in here are unbelievable, the mic still won't hear you. So we want the questions to be in there. So if you shout out a question and everybody hears you and you think it's really weird that I repeated it for some crazy reason, it was just so that the the mics can hear you. So we have here uh, Jim Seebeck and Josh Deeth with Revolution Brewing. And tonight they're going to be discussing uh, barrel aging with us and have some unbelievable beers. These are hard even to get in Chicago. So enjoy tonight and uh,
2: drink up. All right, how's everybody doing? I first walked in, I thought this was like a milk bar from *A Clockwork Orange* or something. Um, but I think we're gonna—we didn't bring our milk stout, but we brought pretty much every other barrel-aged beer uh, that we make at Revolution. Um, so my name is Josh. I'm the chairman of the party at Revolution. I'm the main guy. That's kind of the one who got this all started. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about Revolution, where we came from today to get here. And um, then I'll pass it on over to Jim. Just uh, by way to kind of get, get the story going, um, is the first thing to talk about is, is, is my connection with Jim. Um, back in the late 90s, uh, I had worked, worked at a couple little breweries before that. I got my first brewing job when I was 20 years old. And I was cleaning kegs. Life was good that year. It was a good summer. And I, you know, I just drank craft beer straight from the tank. It was a brewery that just did kegs only, no bottles and cans to take home. I'd have to sneak a growler off. And um, ever since then, I, you know, just got the taste for great fresh beer. Um, we do a lot of hoppy beers. It's kind of the other side of Revolution. This barrel aged side is um, the side we're going to talk about tonight. And then um, eventually got a job at Goose Island. I think I started in '97. You started in.
3: 95.
2: 95. So, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, we're going to pay some respect to where we came from tonight, which is our early time at Goose Island. And I know, you know, not a technical craft brewery here in the great halls of the Brewer's Association, but um, Goose Island is, and and during the time that we were there, is, is where barrel aged beer was really invented for better, for lack of a better term. Bourbon County Stout, now the many, many derivatives of Bourbon Ooh. County Stout that are out there, good beers. And um, still trying to find a coconut one. If someone's got one to trade, I could trade. Um, and so we came out of there. I was a cellarman at Goose Island, and Jim was a brewer. And so I kind of apprenticed under Jim in a lot of ways. And we worked together um, with a lot of other great brewers at the time Matt Brinelson uh, from Firestone, Finn DeMink from Southern Tier, Jonathan Cutler from Peace. So many other great brewers worked with us at that time. We all kind of went our separate ways. And eventually, I, I had this dream for revolution when I was working at Goose, and it took 18 years or so to get it open. Um, we opened up our brew pub four years ago. And, you know, line out the door, you know, people, we opened up and people were like, why don't you have barrel-aged beer? And I was like, all right, with a little education, come on into the cellar. We just got some barrels the other day. And um, we actually decorated the brew pub with bourbon barrels. If you come by the brew pub, all the wall we had—I had actually gotten forty used, empty uh, bourbon county barrels from Goose Island. I was like, we were halfway through construction. I was like, yeah, give me those barrels. We're going to brew into them. And then it took you know, another year to get the place open. And I was like, okay, we can't use these barrels. They're all dry and covered with construction dust. And so we decided, like, what can we do with them? You know, I was. We had hired Jim to be the brewmaster, and we weren't ready to brew yet, so Jim helped break the barrels down. We covered the walls with them. We made lights with the the metal hoops of the barrels, and uh, um, that kind of created a nice atmosphere. And then, we, again, we started brewing barrel-aged beers. But, you know, for us, six months is kind of our standard minimum time for a barrel-aged beer. So it wasn't six, eight months until we really had any barrel beers to do with. And then a couple years ago, two years ago, we opened our production brewery. A lot of people were like, I would love to Get a nice bottle of your beer and send it to my cousin in Arizona or whatever. Take it home with me to a party. And we just couldn't do that out of the brew pub. This wasn't a space for that kind of thing. And so with the production brewery, we were able to kind of bring up the barrel program. What you see in front of you is what we call the Deep Wood series of beers. Um, we had to come up with some kind of name for it. And, you know, that was the name we chose. It kind of reflects the, the time and commitment, you know. And someone, someone just said, well, why this box? You know, why do we put the bottle into the box? The box is, you know, what defines the series. You see it on a shelf; it stands out from all the other bottles. So there's, there's definitely some kind of marketing component of it. It's about a buck a box, you know. So we're still buying pretty small quantities of things, um, but you know, it also it protects it from the light. You know, and it also signifies to the customer when they see it that this is a, an item of care. This is something that we have labored hard over. We, you know, this beer sat for at least six months, sometimes up to eight, nine months. We tend to we don't go for Years and years, we're just a four-year-old brewery. So, um, so that's what it tells them. It's something that we really care a lot about. These are the beers that, you know, when, when you see the other, we just finished up filling up most of our barrels for this coming fall-winter season. And so, when you see the brewers filling these barrels, you know, they're they're taking as much time as they can. They're doing it with the utmost pride. This is the beer that they are the most excited about putting their name on all year long. You know, we make IPA every day all day it's over 50 percent of our sales just one single beer but uh, these beers really mean a lot to us jim is going to think do most of the talking about the different beers and walk you through it and uh, i think i'll just go ahead and pass it on over to jim now and i'll i'm sure i'll pop in and say something but absolutely you go for it
3: hi everyone uh my name is jim Seaback. i'm the head brewer at revolution brewing company in chicago illinois it's an honor to be here uh, with you all tonight this is a wonderful event. Uh, we're really excited to be out here for this. We've been really having a good time, and uh, really excited to present our, uh, excited and proud to present our beers for you and everyone else here at the event. Um, our philosophy at Revolution Brewing Company has been to brew a lot of sessionable styles, uh, and also we go out of the box as well. Um, a lot of our beers tend to be true to style, but then again, sometimes we just go crazy and we'll add a ton of hops in there or we'll make, uh, we'll take up our uh, milk stout. Instead of being a 4% beer, we'll make it a 9% beer. So Josh being the owner, which is wonderful, uh, being a brewer by trade, uh, gives me tons of flexibility and I never have to explain anything to him what the cost of a barrel is or what the cost of ingredients is because sometimes that's a real pain in the ass he's just like he told me before because i would always tell him i'm like josh i'm thinking about doing this and he's like do not ask me that again he's like get whatever you want which was wonderful so but uh as far as our styles go like i said we try to hit a lot of different styles at our brew pub we've probably brewed a a hundred different beers at the brew pub by now a year Yeah. yeah So we we also, as Josh hinted on, when we first opened, people gave us a lot of shit because we're like, well, why don't you have any barrel-age beers? And well, we're like, well, we just opened, you know. (laughs) That's primarily why. And if you just put beer in a barrel and then push it out a week later, it's just going to taste like an imperial stout that someone spilled a shot of bourbon in. Um, So some of these beers that you're tasting here have been in the bottle for a while. And we've aged them in uh, multiple different bourbon barrels for you know, at least six months. That's kind of the minimum that we want to do. And as we grow and grow our barrel program, we're going to try to get up there a little bit closer to a year. Uh, we, we found it's really important to not only pull the bourbon character and aroma and flavor out of the barrel, but you want to let that oak character come out as well. And it takes a little bit of time for the beer to really get integrated into the wood and go in the wood and out of the wood and really pull out some of those nice vanilla, coconut, toasty, uh, oaky flavors from these you know beautiful charred American oak barrels. And that's why a lot of dark beers and barley wines, uh, we actually have a Belgian quadruple that we're really excited about aging in barrels right now. Uh, when you tie in some of these caramelly, chocolatey, roasty flavors from the, the brewer's grains or malts that we use, It just couples beautifully, marries with the all the nice caramel, toasty oak, coconut flavors, you know, from from these barrels. The nice charred sap that gives bourbon its color and its caramely flavor. Because um, a lot of I'm sure a lot of people know, but if you didn't age beer in a charred oak barrel, or or excuse me, uh, whiskey in a charred oak barrel, it would just be white. like you see the guys on TV uh, distilling their uh, moonshine out in the mountains. Uh, (laughs) Nothing against that at all, but it's when you have the the time with the spirit or the beer in the barrel, it leaches all that goodness out of the wood, the flavors, and the aromas, and that's what we're really trying to strive for as brewers. Like I said, we want complexity in the beer. We don't want it just to taste like someone poured a shot of bourbon in there because... I certainly don't like that, and I would, I mean, I don't get me wrong, I like bourbon, but if I want something to taste like straight bourbon, I'll just get a glass of bourbon and not waste the time with the beer, so.
1: And have you ever used brand new oak, unused by uh, Spirit, to try aging beer in? Uh,
3: I, we have actually not done that at uh, Revolution yet, but uh, we did that. I, I worked at, uh, my, as we said, our good friend, Matt Brendelson works at, he's the brewmaster at Firestone Walker. Uh, Paso, California. So uh, I had an opportunity to work out there for a few years and um, they have a barrel aging program there that's second to none. They're aging beer in bourbon barrels, wine barrels, new American oak barrels, used American oak barrels. And when they do all their blends, they do a blend of all these different uh, barrels that are aging. And it's it's amazing to see what the exact same beer tastes like in a Uh, a bourbon barrel, aged in a wine barrel, aged in a new American oak barrel. Uh, New American oak tends to be very, very powerful, very oaky, very toasty, very caramely, almost buttery in aroma, so if you do all American oak, it would be really overpowering, but if you cut in a little bit of that new American oak into uh, even, you know, uh, say a bourbon barrel or a wine barrel aged beer, I mean, it really takes the complexity up, up a notch a serious notch. That's a good question, but anyone that has a question, please feel free to shoot it out at us. Yes, sir. Sort of along the same lines, I come from a wine background, so I'm just curious if you found uh, better success using a spirit space barrel versus uh, Madeira port, something like that, or even like a Scotch barrel that's already been like a bourbon barrel that's been used again, so you get sort of less of the, the booziness. So what, what seems to work well for you? We tend to like to age um, beer and spirits that we really like, so we're definitely uh, bourbon fans, quite honestly. Um, And we're just experimenting. We just filled uh, some cognac barrels with barley wine that we're really excited about. So we're really starting to kind of branch out and try some different uh, spirit barrels as well. Uh, The third-year beer, which you'll be tasting tonight, is actually really exciting because it was actually Jack Daniels barrels that were stripped down and uh, refurbished and rebuilt and aged with uh, Appleton rum in them. So you'll get a chance to try that out. And it was 100% uh, American oak barrels. Uh, As I said, they were Jack Daniels barrels aged with Appleton rum. And it was a very short residence time in the barrel too. It was only three months, but it's exciting to see how much character it was able to uh, draw out of those barrels and out of that rum in a short period of time. But uh, we're just starting to get uh, involved in uh, aging with some wine barrels. Uh, We've yet to do any uh, Scotch barrels at all. But from what everyone, or from what I've really seen is that most people that are either aging uh, most spirits, whether it's Scotch or tequila, a lot of times these days are just refurbished uh, bourbon barrels. But it's amazing to see what those different spirits can actually contribute to the beer. It's uh, very exciting to uh, play with as a brewer for sure.
2: I've got a question. Is, is it okay to start drinking my beer, Jim? <laughs>
1: yes. I think it's more wrong if you don't.
2: Yeah, I, I, see, I see a lot of people sitting by, and this is meant to be a user, uh, user involvement, high activity type of salon here. Um, so we'll just go ahead and, you know, we're, we're going to weave some stories throughout the night. Questions are really going to make this a lot of fun. Uh, this first beer is, is Mean Gene. Um, it's the first of two beers that, that share the same base beer um, they're built off of Eugene Porter, which is one of our year-round um, canned beers. Eugene is a robust porter. You know, there's a couple different sub-styles of porter, porter, but Eugene is robust. It's up at 7% alcohol, definitely on the higher end for an, what we consider kind of like an everyday, everyday porter. Um, it's, it's very chocolatey. Um, it's named after you. I'll talk about who it's named after and you can talk a about the beer. It's, it's, Jim, it's Jim's recipe, and so he can talk about the beer and recipe, but I came up with the name, which is named after Eugene V. Debs, who is, uh, and we're here, we are here in, the, in Washington, D.C. Eugene V. Debs is probably the most famous American socialist. Um, I'm not a politician, so I don't mind saying that I, I'm, I've got a bit of a socialist inclination with a capitalist problem these days. And, uh, but uh, he, he actually led the Pullman-Porter Railroad strike which is, there's your little Porter, hey! Um, We were just at the National Archives today, killing some time, and they had in the labor section a little uh, photo display of the Pullman Porter Railroad strike. The the railroads brought in the federal troops um, and to quell the strike, and many people died. It was a very bloody thing. It was the first time federal troops had ever been brought in to uh, end a strike because it threatened the national security because the entire railroad system shut down. This is before we had cars and highways and things like that. And uh, uh, Mr. Debs got put into jail for organizing the strike after um, like the courts had, had said that it was not legal. And he actually ran for president twice, once from jail. He ran for president. And so he's a really colorful character. I don't think he really drank a lot of beer. But um, we're in the city. We've got a lot of rich history there. And so we try to have fun with that one. But
3: go ahead. I also like the mean Gene Okerlund uh, idea as well. Uh, that- that, that's, a, that's a good one. I appreciate that. But a little bit about the beer, as Josh alluded to, uh, our uh, Eugene Porter is a, a very rich, robust porter. We use Pale Ale malt as a base malt, uh, Munich malt, car- uh, Carmel 45 malt, which is a Care um, Munich malt from Belgium, um, and lots of Brees cho- dark chocolate malt, which is, there's no chocolate involved in this beer at all. It's just uh, malt which is roasted to the point where it's not quite as far roasted as a roasted barley, where it has a coffee-like aroma. It's a little less than that. It has a really nice, deep, dark, chocolatey character to it, which not only gives it an intense, dark color, but a really rich, chocolatey aroma. Uh, This beer for us is a wonderful base beer for aging in uh, different barrels. Uh, we've had really, really good results uh, aging it in multiple bourbon barrels. We've aged it in uh, Woodford Reserve barrels before, uh, Old Forester barrels. We have some Heaven Hill barrels uh, that we are aging with it right now. Um, it's a wonderful base beer to go into the, into these barrels. And when we pull the beer out of the barrels, we've done some variants, which has been pretty exciting. Uh, we did some with boysenberry puree, some with blueberry uh, extract. Uh, We've also done some with coffee beans, which you'll uh, be tasting today, which is actually really, really exciting and uh, really nice and smooth. Uh, One of the other nice things about this beer is that it has a lot of flavor and depth, but it's not so high in alcohol content where you can enjoy a few of them. Uh, The Eugene going into the barrel is right around 7% ABV, so coming out of the barrel, we're right around that 9% alcohol
2: by volume, which is... I I think the label says 8.5%. If anyone out here works for the Federal Tax and Trade Bureau. It actually, it's in, in beer. It's illegal to pick up more than two percent, more than like one point nine percent alcohol um, by aging it in a spirits barrel. And so, in some ways, no matter what is in there, we have to abide by the law. And so that's how we abide by it.
3: So yes, it's eight point five percent. Whatever it needs to be. So. I think we're only a couple
2: that. blocks away, so we'll keep our voices down.
3: But. Please feel free to pick up this beer and just have a look at it. You'll see how dark it is. Uh, it's really hard to see because it's so dark in here, but it's actually rather clear. We're, uh, we're very adamant when we fill our barrels. We make sure that our beer is very nice and clear before it goes into the barrel. Uh, we don't filter our beer, but we use findings to naturally drop the beer nice and clear, and we gently push it into these barrels. Uh, But before we send the beer into the barrel, it's also very important to purge these barrels out with CO2 to make sure that it's a complete CO2 environment. Uh, A barrel is not a completely closed um, container like a half barrel would be that's stainless steel. Uh, A barrel is kind of like your skin, I mean no matter, it's not 100% enclosed. It's porous, and there's always going to be a little bit of micro-oxygenation or a little bit of oxygen sneaking into that barrel as it uh, ages. What we try to do, though, is prevent that as much as we can. We, we want a little oxygen going in. We're not going to be able to prevent that from happening, but we don't want that beer to be massively oxidized as soon as it goes into the barrel. So we try to uh, make it a complete CO2 environment and then gently fill that barrel from the bottom to the top. And when we fill those barrels, we try to keep the pressure on our tanks very, very low because we don't want too much CO2 being absorbed in the beer for two reasons. Because when we fill the barrels, the beer is cold because we're trying to keep any little bit of residual carbon dioxide that's in the beer uh, as low as possible so the beer doesn't foam and we don't have a lot of loss when we're filling the barrels. But also, we don't want as that barrel or as the beer in that barrel warms up to our room temperature as we're aging, that CO2 is going to come out of solution and pop the little bung that we have on the top of our barrel off. So we try to prevent that as much as we can. And we have little pressure relief bungs on top of our barrel. So as the CO2 does come out of solution, it's a little peg at the top that just psh, kind of slowly relieves the pressure and then pulls back down. So it's He not wasn't exposed. being dirty, that's what it's called. Yes, well, it's called the bung hole. Yes, it is the bung hole.
2: And I think you get an appreciation for like how much Jim cares about the actual process that goes into this, because this is his world. This is what we do every day, and so, you know, obviously this beer has got great flavors and tastes. Got a question here? No, no, no. Uh, Let's do it. I love questions. Straight for questions.
1: I was just curious how you guys do sanitize, you know, sanitizing the barrels versus sanitizing tanks. Is there, like, what's the process there?
3: That's actually a very good question. Um, With our tanks, we go through a caustic cycle to clean, primarily clean the tank, then we hot rinse that out and uh, sanitize the tank with a phosphoric acid-based sanitizer. With our barrels, when they come in, we do nothing. We just, we leave the, the wooden bung that comes with the barrel in and what we do is just rinse off the barrel, clean it off as much as we can, but we don't want to rinse the barrel. We don't want to rinse away any of that good bourbon goodness out of there. Uh, we just rely on the beer, ABV being strong enough to kind of hold up being in there, and there's quite a bit of residual uh, spirit that's in the barrel as well, which gets leached back out uh, into the beer. So we just try to be as gentle and sanitary with the beer, filling operation as we can. But we don't do anything with the uh,
2: inside of our bourbon barrels. You know, those alcohol swabs, they rub on you before they give you a shot. That's exactly what's inside of the barrel. and so. Um, you know, we're lucky, you know, it's you, know, when you go visit a distillery and it's a very different thing when you see, you know, because we share in common with the distilleries the beginning several steps of our process which is, you know, they're making a wash, we're making beer, um, then they're throwing it into the still, which then purifies everything and cooks it off and separates the alcohol from the water and all the other um, nice flavor compounds and they are far less worried at a distillery about, like, the sanitation of their product. I went to the Woodford distillery uh, last summer, um, which I would highly recommend. If you want to go to, dist- you know, there's a lot of different ones in Kentucky. You should go down there and learn about this process. The Woodford one is like a museum. It's so pretty. Beautiful tour. Beautiful stone buildings. The houses where the barrels age. We use a lot of Woodford barrels. They're owned by Brown and Foreman, uh, who also owns Jack Daniels, but they own uh, the Old Forester, where, you know, the barrels are made at the same place, but they're distilled. The whiskey is made in several different places. So, uh, we do really like their barrels. They're, it's a very nice quality barrel in terms of the craftsmanship that goes into this. Um, just to clarify a few things, you know, what is a bourbon barrel? Okay? And even the, wine, the rum barrel aged beer that we're talking about today came was originally a bourbon barrel. These are all American white oak barrels. That's part of the stipulation of bourbon is that you've got to be at least 50% plus corn and you've got to use freshly charred American white oak. And, so and are you
1: only using... Thirty-one gallon barrels, or are you using any smaller barrels?
2: We're only using the standard size barrels. We do have, you know, we're starting to get these uh, cognac barrels that we got are 270 liters. Some of your when you get into your European stuff, Madeira and things like that, you're going to get some odd shaped stuff. The sherry barrels are bigger.
3: Yeah, our uh, most of our bourbon barrels are right in about that 52 to 53 gallon capacity range. Yes, sir
1: we got a question
3: here, and then I'll jump over to you. Hey, guys. Um,
1: first, I've had many barrel-aged beers. Definitely the best I've had, so cheers.
3: Oh, thank you. Thank Time you kindly. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. We appreciate that.
1: Um, and my, my second question
2: is very simple. Death's tar without the A we're not, we're not there yet, man. You're going too fast. <laughs> 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 All right, I. W- we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. We have to clear the room of affiliates of George Lucas before we do that. That's there's a uh, lot of people that you know. There's a lot of people that we've got to watch out for here. <laughs> Did you know that the TTB, in addition to not wanting you to pick up more than two uh, percent or more alcohol, also would like you to wash your barrels before you fill them with beer? Uh, just just, yeah. just for the record.
3: We shan't be doing that, though. Have you started uh, playing with blending different beers that have been aged in different types of barrels? So you're doing a lot of bourbon, you've brought on some cognac. Any thoughts of blending the two and seeing what happens? You know, quite honestly, we're looking forward to doing that. And what we're really kind of doing now is building up our barrel aging program, which the more you have, the more you have to play with. And in the future, we just had a smaller, I think we started with in the beginning, at the brew pub, we had like five or six barrels. And now at Kedzie, which is our production brewery, we're gonna probably have about 300 this year. So it's gonna allow us to hold back on a few things and do a little bit of blending and, and playing around, which is actually very exciting for us. Which is it's a great question, though, because you can get some amazing results blending different styles of beer. And, you know, it could, it could even be blended in with beer that's not, you know, a portion of that could not be barrel aged. It could be just regular stainless fermented beer. Uh, you know, if you feel that when you're tasting your blend, it's too oaky, it's too bourbon, you know, too much on the bourbon end of the nose or the flavor, you know, you could cut in some uh, new, uh, for, you know, newly fermented beer from stainless um, all of our barrel aging program, all our beer has been, it, it's strictly barrel aged. We haven't blended in any, uh, any uh, stainless fermented beer uh, into, the, into the blend.
2: Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know. Other breweries no. do that. It's a way to kind of take uh, and extend the amount of beer and the volume of beer you're making. Our goal um, has always been to bring the most flavor we can generally forward in these beers. You know, these are not cheap beers. These are, these are 15 bucks at our brew pub. Um, you know, when you sell them direct to the public, when I sell it to a distributor and they market it up, they sell it to a retailer and they market it up. These beers are getting to be 19 bucks on the shelf of Binies, our, our local big retailer, who sells a lot of these beers for us. So um, we're bringing a lot of flavor to the table for people, and this gets to another common question, which is, how often do we reuse the barrels? And for us, this is the real simple answer is, we're really just using them once. Yeah, they come from the distillery with the maximum amount of bourbon in there. Um, but one option that is open to you is to reuse them a second time and then blend that in with some single-use bourbon. Um, you, you get a slightly less bourbon flavor, but you're able to get a little more out of the barrel. Um, I feel, you know, I'm pretty big into your green initiatives and reduce, reuse, recycle type of stuff. Um, we're already reusing a barrel. It's a, you know, it was a lovely oak tree probably seven years ago. Um, it got built into this beautiful barrel and very beautiful whiskey was, was made with it. Um, we try to get it as fresh as we can. Jim has really done a good job building relationships with uh, you know, the, the guys who sell the barrels at the distillery. Some of those guys we've learned actually enjoy drinking beer. It's a nice way to heighten your relationship with them.
3: They enjoy drinking a lot of things in large quantities.
2: <laughs> several, several other brewers have approached our table today from, from large Midwest-based breweries that will remain nameless, asking us if we had a good connection at Woodford. <laughs> and we said, we said, yes, we do. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, there's, it's important to get the barrels fresh. We, um, we try to arrange our barrel filling program all kind of in the same time of year. And we're not selling these barrel beers in the middle of July, you know. And so it is getting kind of hot and muggy outside the walls here today. But for us, it's like we're finishing up our season now of filling everything. There's a, a few new brands coming that we'll talk about in a minute that we're filling up now. And then that'll be coming out September into February, March, and then it kind of dies down. It's a nice time also for the brewery because summer is traditionally your biggest beer selling season of the year. And we're able to kind of get all this brewing of these big strong beers done in the middle of winter when tank space is a little bit more available. And you know, we're brewing at capacity every day of the year. And so that's, that does help there. When that bell is ready, just let me know. All right. Um, we should probably like start talking about the bean gene, which everybody has in front of them right.
3: But yes, I mean, any questions on the uh, on the on the mean gene here? I mean it's like I said it's our robust porter aged in barrels, and when you taste it, you notice that it's not overly boozy it's one of the things we 've always tried to achieve in all our styles of beer is balance and even when we get into the more intense styles, I think that is what really to me. Uh, it's always been my sign of a great brewery is when they can make beers that are, are balanced, and you know even as the intensity increases, you can keep that balance, and that's one of the greatest challenges in our industry, I think. Uh, but we're we're really proud of this. We we like the Eugene on its own, but uh, it's really wonderful, and it's a blank canvas to play around with coming um, out of the barrel. But the Mean gene here was aged specifically in Woodford Reserve barrels, and uh, you know even though it has some nice bourbon nose and flavor on it. It's not overly boozy, and it's pretty well integrated, and um, we're pretty proud of it. So I I hope you enjoy it as well. And not specifically to Mean Gene, but just the bourbon barrel aging process. Do you have an issue with production? With so many breweries going to a barrel aging program, do you have to time as far as the base
1: beer, do you have to time that with the availability of, of barrels
3: to actually age in. That's actually a very good question, because uh, we've always had trouble. There's three things, three components that are really important, uh, is having the beer ready to go into barrels, having barrels, and having racks for the barrels. If you are missing one of those uh, components, you're kind of backing things up quite a bit, so... This year we were fortunate. I kind of planned ahead and had a shitload of racks and a ton of barrels sitting ready to go, so we're ready to fill some barrels and brew some beer. And uh, but that's a great question because we're,
2: yeah, we were a little, we were a little, you know, a couple of months ago yeah. we were kind of you know looking at our numbers of barrels we were getting, talking to our usual people, and coming up a little bit short. We were planning for our barrel season. We wanted to do a few new things, and uh, we obviously we wanted to increase the. You know, just the production of some of the beers that we've made. This is a lot of these beers have only been have come out once or twice. You know, total for our brewery, we're still a very young brewery. So um, you know, seventy-five percent of the bourbon barrels in the reuse market go to quiz Scotland. Scotland, Drew for two points. So um, in addition, you know, bourbon. If you don't know, bourbon is doing really well right now. You know, yeah, and so. But it's got to be. Is it what is the minimum age of bourbon? Is it three years? I think, I think three years. The minimum the, age for
1: bourbon is actually uh, the moment it touches new oak. new oak. As long as it's over yeah, 50 it's got, percent, it's got to go into a barrel. The rules start coming when you call it straight or bonded. But otherwise, to call it bourbon, it just has to be 50 percent corn and touch, yeah. touch new boy. American oak.
2: Toasted, we, have, we have a new char- micro distillery like three storefronts up from Revolution. And they just started. They're like, Can we just get one of those barrels. We just want to put it in for a minute and take it out. I it's got to like, be new. Yeah, and I was like, man, don't be doing that. You know, make it make it taste good. I was like, lesson learned. Quality is job one. So, yeah. So these barrels, you know, it's not a super, you know, I guess, reflexive type of supply in that you can't immediately um, change the number of barrel. You you can't immediately bring the, the bourbon, especially if it's a well-aged bourbon. And you know, every different brand of bourbon has got their internal standards, whether or not they put it on the label or not, about how long they age for. Um, a good example is. Um, like Heaven Hill, we, we use Heaven Hill varieties for the Death Star, and it's, it's the same whiskey in the same barrel, but uh, it comes out at different times, and they give it different names. It's uh, Evan Williams, you know, at, I think, seven years, and it's uh, Elijah Craig at 11 years. And so, and then they have a lot of other varieties. You can get uh, Old Bardstown and a bunch of other whiskeys. Heaven Hill is, like, the Walmart of bourbon, and that is huge, huge distillery, and they're making all these different types of whiskeys. It's great because if you like that flavor from Heaven Hill, you can go and get some of these off brands real cheap. If you're looking for a, you know a bourbon like that, you can also try to seek out some of the more exquisite and well-aged stuff. So um, this year has actually been a big price spike in bourbon barrels. I think we're up 20% in price. You know for the reused barrels, we tend to pay. We used to pay like 100 bucks a barrel, then we're paying 120, 125, and now we're talking 140, 145, and it's like, you know, it, we can we can. Uh, you know, I'm like the more the money side of the business, I guess, like we were talking about before. And I don't mind, you know, it's, overall it's a pretty small amount. When I'm selling a whole bunch of $15 bottles, I can absorb 20 bucks more per barrel because we got 53 gallons in a barrel. So um, at the same time, it shows like the writing on the wall. Lots of breweries getting into the game, lots of interest in these barrels. You got to have your relationships with the people. You got to be a good steady customer and you got to be willing. If they say, well, I got barrels for you now, but I might not have them in three months, then... I say to Jim, let's brew some Eugene and get it into the barrel, and maybe we'll just release it a couple months earlier. Maybe we'll age it longer. So.
1: You know, we have a gentleman with a wine background in here. I am myself a sommelier. And uh, so one of the things I think is great about craft beer and beers like this, is, as much as uh, Josh and Jim talk about how expensive these beers are, to buy that new barrel for a winery, for example, yeah. costs $1,500. And they're talking about $100 and 120 so the quality of beer here for $18 is what you would pay for Lafitte, you know, at new, you know, on future at 7 to $1,100 a bottle. So that's what we get here. Uh, and so you see, too, if we were doing wine tonight, this would be an absolute no-no. It would be awful. People would be like, what on God's earth are you doing to that poor wine? But I encourage you to hold the, uh, the glass here with your palm and let it warm up. And really pay attention to how the flavors change as it warms up. It's unbelievable. Not every beer is meant to be ice cold, and this is one of them. It's uh, it's the craftsmanship that they're putting into it.
2: Yeah, we're.
3: we're thank you. Sorry. Uh, sort of, did you see the, the wine barrels were a lot more expensive than the bourbon barrels that they're talking about.
1: I'm sorry, I didn't mean to get in there with that, but sure, it's are. more than just new oak barrels are unbelievably expensive. That's where you're talking about fifteen hundred dollars. Once they become used, they're quite a bit cheaper because there's only a few things you can do with them.
2: And there's just, you know, if you, look, if you just look at a wine barrel and you look at a bourbon barrel, they're, they're built in a very different manner. And, you know, the, a, a wine barrel has, like, dovetail joints. A bourbon barrel looks like it comes from Kentucky. <laughs> 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 and, uh, you know, that's just, the, that's, just, <laughs> that's just the nature of it. And so there are different styles. Maybe people have higher expectations when they go to a winery and when they see a barrel, they want it to look nice. The bourbon barrels are burnt. That's a big part of the flavor that we're tasting here. I was gonna bring up marshmallows, you know, which is one of the key flavors that you get in that vanilla component out of the bourbon, but you know, they actually, if you go to a cooperage, which is the name of a place where they make barrels, they open up the barrel, they build the sides of it, the staves, and put the bands together. Before they put the ends on, uh, they kind of open it up like a flower and they build a fire in the bottom. I'm probably out of more oak because they got a ton of that around, and, they literally char and burn the inside of the barrel. The wine barrels are, are generally toasted. There's a range of toast that is used in the barrels, and so you're, you're picking up a lot different flavor. But that barrel, by sitting over a fire, it's really rough looking, and it's just a different, you know. Different it's even a sexy kind of
1: name a... versus a rough name. It's yeah. toasted. It's charred.
2: Charred, yeah. <laughs> All right, so um, the second beer we have in front of us is, is the Bean Gene, and it's very much related to the Bean Gene. It rolls right forward here. It's the same beer sitting in... Not quite the same barrels. We did use some old forester barrels.
3: Yeah, there were some old forester barrels incorporated into this as well. And what we found with the old forester barrels is it really, really added a really nice, caramely depth to the beer. And um, we just wanted to differentiate it a little bit from the straight mean gene. So it's a blend of Woodford and old forester barrels. And then uh, this beer is then it's transferred out of the barrels at room temperature into a fermentation tank with a straining bag of a local coffee roaster called Dark Matter in, in Chicago. They do a special revolution blend for us for our brew pump. So we, um, let's see, we do about 20 barrels of beer with 14 uh, pounds of whole bean coffee that we age um, at room temperature for four days before we turn the temperature down on the fermentation tank because at the warmer, for, or at the warmer beer temperature, we're gonna extract more of that nice coffee aroma and flavor.
2: Yeah, so, not quite a cold infusion, but it's like a room temperature infusion is the best way to think about this. So, if you imagine it at home, when you wake up all groggy in the morning, if you put out some room temperature water and you put your coffee beans into it and let it sit for a week, and you know, put off, you know, no one could ever do that, but you know, it gives you a much more you're getting a lot more nutty flavors out of the coffee. You're not extracting nearly as much of the bitter tannic compounds of the coffee. And again, just like the bourbon barrel, we work with the local coffee roaster. And he pretty much roasts it up the day before. And we get it and put it right away into the tank that's holding this beer. So, you know, again, the coffee has such kind of supple, special, fresh flavors in there. You know, that's why coffee beans come in that bag that has a little oxygen seal to not let air into it. You're supposed to roll it up every day. It's the same kind of thing. It's a fresh product. You know, every, even these barrel beers, you know, so our, our IPAs, you know, we, had, we put a fresh date on it the day it's canned. Let me encourage everybody to drink these right away. They're not going to get any better. These beers definitely develop and change over time. We're, we're now, really for the first time, tasting our own barrel-aged beers a couple years in. We really haven't had much opportunity to do that. We've done it at other breweries, but we've never done it with our own beers. And um, but at the same time, there are components of the flavor that you, know, you want to try to treat as a, a fresh product, try to not oxidize the product. We go through great lengths. I just can't stress this enough. You know, there aren't other brewers here, but the other brewers out on the floor that are making barrel-aged beers, purging your barrels with CO2 beforehand. When we take 20 barrels and we push it into a tank and then carbonate the beer, we have to purge the CO2 in that tank. If it's touching oxygen in there, the beer is going to oxidize more. Obviously, when you bottle the beer, it's important to keep the oxygen out of the beer at every little step in the process. All these beers, barrel-aged beers, do exhibit some kind of oxidative flavor which tends to increase the sweetness in your beer. and Some people actually like it and it does kind of go well with the barrel aged flavor. It's one of the main things that you're going to get over time. The beers are going to dry out a little bit. For me that's a big part of our grand philosophy of how we do barrel aged beers is we try to select sweeter beers to go into the barrel. If you don't pick a, a beer that's generally sweet on the way into the barrel, you know, alcohol has this drying effect on the tongue. The, the extra fermentation that happens in, in aging in the barrel and the oxidation also dries the beer out in some ways, although it adds some sweetness. So I think that's really important in order to get a well-balanced final beer. We actually have to overdo it on the sweetness sometimes. Some of these beers are, are barley wine, which is pouring downstairs. The straitjacket is a good example. When it's fresh and really sweet, you know, some, kind of, some people don't really like it. It's too sweet for them. It really tastes like heavy plums or dark stone fruit, but you put it in the barrel for six, eight months, and it comes out just nice.
3: Yeah, we really designed that beer to really kind of go into the, I mean, it goes directly into the barrel after fermentation once we clarify the beer for our barley wine and for all our barrel-aged beers. We want to make sure that the beer is as clear as possible because we don't want a lot of uh, brewer's yeast going into the barrel because we're going to be doing these prolonged aging Times in the barrel. And brewer's yeast dies very, very quickly once the fermentation is over with and it's exhausted. It's uh, nutrient sources in the cell. The cells die. Uh, they burst, increase the pH of the beer, and give your beer off flavors. So we want to have as little yeast in there as possible when we're doing this prolonged aging. I know sometimes from what I've heard, um, like with champagne, it's um, prized to, to uh, they say it's on the lees or sitting on the yeast. Which adds some nice flavors to the to the wine, but for us, with our we found with brewers yeast tends to give the contribute meaty, off flavors to the beer, which is very unpleasant.
2: All right, so I think not that time is short here tonight, and we're not going to shove anybody out. But we do have we did pour the third year beer for everybody. I think I think Jim and I would would like to celebrate the third anniversary of Revolution once again. Absolutely. You know, I think bourbon barrel beer is what they're all about. Love Here we go. I right
3: any game. thoughts or comments on the bean gene yeah. oh, at perfect. all? I'm
2: good.
3: One of the things we tried, uh, what I didn't talk about is the Eugene is so chocolatey and rich. One of the things we didn't want to do is uh, have the roastiness of the coffee overpower the chocolatiness of the actual beer. So we wanted them to kind of work together in tandem. So we tried not to blow the coffee uh, character of the beer out of the water. We just wanted it to be a nice component. and. Uh, be there in the aroma as well so unfortunately with hoppy beers hop hop oils that are in your beer um, such as nice hoppy american ipas or pale ales sometimes i know people love to age beers they're just dying to age beers but some people will be like i i aged your ipa for six months and i tasted it and it wasn't that hoppy and i'm like well yeah no shit (laughs) Exactly. So, unfortunately, what we found, though, is the oils from the coffee beans tend to fade over time as well. So, it definitely loses its intensity over time. But, quite honestly, we didn't want it to really, our goal is not to have it be incredibly intense. As I said, we, you know, we, we always strive for a, a well-balanced product. And we didn't want to totally overshadow the tr- rich chocolatiness of the, of the Eugene Porter by just making it a coffee bomb. So, hope, hopefully you enjoyed it.
2: All right, Jim and I now have our third year beer so we can officially toast with everybody. Cheers. 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 All right. And I think we
0: have a
1: question back here. Uh,
2: love questions.
0: <laughs> well, actually, um, I just more have a comment. If anyone here homebrews, um, we homebrew a lot. And if you want to get a barrel, but obviously you don't want you know a giant barrel, a lot of bre- um, distilleries that are just starting out start out with small five gallon barrels and they only use them once so they'll sell them to you and they'll ship them anywhere usually like we got one from Washington State shipped over here to Maryland and we've used that a couple times and it's fantastic
1: the surface area really changes the flavor and
0: accelerates the aging time yeah so it's it's awesome this is true yeah so definitely if you homebrew check that out
2: yeah we actually at our brew pub restaurant we're aging Pickles, Worcestershire sauce, hot sauce, malt vinegar, and a bunch of other stuff in local gin barrels that we get from our local distillers across the way. And uh, so it's like, we love those barrels, but like, when we're making beer for customers, five gallons reminds us of our home brewing days. And it's just like, it's not worth, no, no, it's, it's a great way to get started. It's a great way to play around with random things and different kinds of barrels. We're getting rye barrels, different base grains and different... Different stuff for fun. We'll do that and just drink it all ourselves because five gallons doesn't go too far. And around the brewery. So um, this third year beer, um, you know, we have, we started out. You know, it was our first year anniversary. We decided we need to make something. We made a we made a black IPA. The first year, first year beer. That was a hoppy porter. That one. Was a hoppy porter. Uh, yeah. he, Jim didn't want to call it a black IPA back then. So. Yes, <laughs> yeah, we're definitely not going to call it that. And. Uh, but you know, so we, the second year it was uh, an English bitter. Uh, yeah,
3: yeah. we'll brewed an English IPA at the Brew Pub. Yeah, yeah.
2: and um, just to change the pace, third year we had our, our big brewery open. Um, we had hadn't been open hadn't been open that long. We didn't have a ton of time. That's why we only aged it for, I think, three months, right?
3: It was a very short uh, residence time in in the barrels, uh, three yeah. months.
2: But but so the, what we're tasting now is a rum, but actually it was a formerly a uh, bourbon barrel like we talked about. So don't don't need to hide about so we order these rum barrels and they show up at the brewery and they say, Jack Daniels on them and I was like, ah But you know, then you know you learn that's that's how they age rum. You know, it makes sense. That it's they're reusing what what we put off. The whole rule about having to use a freshly charred bourbon barrel is the underpinning of all this barrel economy. You know, they're uh, Winemakers are buying these barrels you know, all across the country. Sometimes they actually take barrels, number all the staves, break everything down, stack it up into a shipping container, ship it without all the air inside of the barrels. You can get a whole lot more barrels in a shipping container that way. And then they reassemble them in wherever their destination country is. And it's just a very efficient way of doing this kind of thing. So this rum barrel-aged beer, it started out as a wheat wine. Okay? So it's similar to a barley wine, but with a very heavy wheat base. What kind of percentage of wheat would you say?
3: 50% uh, malted red wheat.
2: Okay, so a little gummy in the in the mash tun, in the latter tun?
3: Luckily, we had lots of bags of rice hulls, so it was no problem.
2: <laughs> so, um, yeah, wheat wine, again, a style of beer that tends to be very rich and sweet. The wheat adds so much mouthfeel and body to the beer. Um, I would go ahead and say um, that wheat wine not my favorite style of beer and, but this whole put it into the barrel extracts some of these nice liquor flavors and uh, i don't know do, do you guys feel like you're picking up some of the rum flavor
3: the barrel character is not too intense on this one uh, as we said it was a very short residence time uh, but the amazing thing about this beer is where it gets all its color is it, as josh alluded to it was a, it's a wheat wine um, so there's 50% malted uh, red wheat that we used in the mash, um, two-row malt as the other base grain, and just a sprinkling of caramel malt and a little of a, a Belgian malt called Special B. So the color of the wort in the going to the brew kettle was actually a very faint orange color, but where it gets this really deep red color from is a prolonged boil. Uh, we boiled each brew for three hours. And that's where you really get the deep caramelization of those sugars from the malt and it takes that color up from a light orange color to a deep red and one of the things that we found in brewing is if you really want to brew a barley wine or uh, a wheat wine something you want to have a nice high alcohol content and ferment down and be balanced you don't want to add too many caramel malts to begin with you want to pick up your nice reddish hue in your, in your beer from a prolonged boil, not from large amounts of caramelized malts in your mash because as that beer ages, it just gets super sweet and caramelly tasting and it just overwhelms your entire uh, palate on the beer. It just kind of dominates it from what, from what we found. So once again, we just wanted to brew a really nice solid base beer to uh, uh, be aged in these barrels. find the rum imparts a lot of sweetness to it or or not considering it's sugar it definitely does add a bit of sweetness to it for sure Uh, especially these were appleton rum barrels and the the appleton rum definitely tends to have a little bit of uh, color to it and a little bit of sweetness so we figured with this beer it would definitely uh, work well and uh, being that it's not a really dark roasty or chocolatey beer it would allow a little bit of that uh, spirit to actually come through and not be uh, dominated
2: by dark malt character. So th- this beer is 15 months old from being put in the bottle, all right? So this was a lot sweeter when we first bottled it. I think someone on, people in Beer Advocate, some people thought it was too sweet, but this gets here like, you know, you know, line of how sweet do you want your product to be, and over time, it's a beer meant for aging, that's what anniversaries are, they're meant to last and continue on. So this is definitely qualifies as a vintage type of beer here. We've got a little library of beers that we're holding back for this type of thing and you know, it holds up it holds up real well over time. The nice thing about high alcohol beers, beers with a little bit of bourbon in them, is they tend to last real long. The extra alcohol in there staves off any kind of possible, you know, microbe activity. It even helps I think with oxidation over time. So
3: And this one's clocking in right around, if I'm not mistaken, if I remember correctly, right around 11.5%, I think, coming out of the barrel. Somewhere in that range. So it's pretty large on the ABV percentage, but it's still pretty well rounded on the mouthfeel, I I would have to say.
2: It also had uh, Mexican sugar in it, piloncillo, which comes in the little cones. You see it in the Mexican grocery store. And uh, it's a lot like molasses, it's very much a raw sugar in its very raw form. And, um, you know, around Chicago, people use it to make classic Mexican hot chocolate with cinnamon and spices. And so uh, we we were able to get it at the local grocery store and just dump those cones into the kettle when we were boiling. One of
3: the other things we tend to do with our barrel-aged beers is we don't over-hop them on the bitter side. uh, And also trying to add any aroma hops to beers that are going to be going into a barrel is quite honestly just a waste of aroma hops because... Hop oils are very fragile, and they're the first thing that's going to oxidize. So if you put a double IPA into a barrel and think it's going to be hoppy six months down the line, you're going to be disappointed. But one of the things we try to do is achieve a balanced bitterness. Um, I know a lot of times people try to overshoot their bitterness really high on barley wines and imperial stouts uh, because they know that the bitterness is going to fade over time. However, if you start too high it's going to be super bitter and it's going to take you three years before you could drink it
2: alright it's time for some death star uh, well wait right, until so, he starts talking about that so I was, I, was, I was brought into this world with the last name that you know I was given as um, like I said we went to the archives today we did our our tour of liberty and, and archives and records the other day I was in New York and my mom and dad came through town. I was there with my family and we went to Ellis Island and looked up a few different names. And I'm sure the name was like changed. It didn't, we couldn't find records of the Deeth name. We found it of the other names. Deeth is how my last name it was. Um, it was pronounced. Everybody always mispronounced it. My dad's got a PhD, so people would call for Dr. Death on the phone all the time. <laughs> we, probably, we probably could do a Dr. Death beer at some point. But um. this one, we always were, you know, when you drink you're a brewer and you're drinking a bunch of beers, you know, at some point it turns, you know, late in the night after you've had a whole bunch, maybe some barrel-aged beers, you start coming up with cool names, you're like, yeah, that would be really great, let's do that. And this was, this one definitely qualifies in that department, and I pronounce it Death Star because, you know, I'm definitely a Star Wars junkie, my my nine-year-old son is a Star Wars junkie, my daughter pretty much is, though she tries to deny it, but they love it, and, um, you know, this is you know we kind of felt like you know we leave the A out. Maybe George Lucas will leave us alone.
3: We don't want George Lucas to have us killed.
2: <laughs> and uh, give him some beer. He's actually talking about building that museum that he's building a Lucas Museum uh, with all his gobs of money these days. Uh, maybe in Chicago. He just he just he just married Melody Hobson. You know, great. I got an I got an IRA at her financial company, and. um and then, and they, she lives in Chicago, so he's living in the city part, part time of the year. He hasn't come by yet to say hi, but um, ever watch the regular show? You know, Mark Hamill is like the, abominable, the voice of the abominable snowman on the regular show. I highly recommend that. He's a very talented vo- voice artist. Anyways, so Death Star. You know, you know we, we had done some imperial stouts. You know, we live in, we're, we're in the greater Chicagoland area. Jim used to work at Three Floyds, you know, in between working at Goose and working at Firestone and eventually working at Revolution. And uh, we live kind of under the the shadow of, of Dark Lord in a lot of ways because it's such like a, you know, it is like a touchstone of an Imperial Stout. Um, it, it became like way more popular than they probably wanted it to be. And uh, Jim used to brew it back in the day. It started out as just this beer they would brew a little bit of and sell and it just turned into this crazy festival. Uh, and, uh, and so in some ways we, we kind of didn't want to come out of the gate right away with an Imperial Stout, right? We didn't want to try to say we're better, you know, than that or anything like that. And so we kind of held off a few years. We did a collaborate, collaboration Imperial Stout with, the, with Nick and the guys at Three Floyds.
3: That was actually a fun project. We did that at our brew pub. We did a huge Imperial Stout um, which we named Sodom and then we had a Second running's beer, which is a light stout uh, that we really heavily hopped with all American hops, which we named Gamora. So it was it was a fun project. Uh, we had a huge, massive imperial stout, and then we just had like a hop light hoppy stout that was three and a half percent, and the imperial stout was 11 percent. So it was a fun project to work on, and it just it's way more efficient. You're not wasting all that nice uh, sugary extract from the grain, and you end up with two completely different beers, which are both really awesome to drink, but one's three and a half percent, so you could drink ten of them, and you're you know, nice and hoppy, and then you, know, you drink a snifter of the Imperial Stout, and you're all good.
2: So when it came time to make Death Star, we figured we would change up the formula a little bit. Jim and I collaborated on the recipe, and um, uh, it's an Imperial Oatmeal Stout. We actually, we mentioned it on the box, but it, we decided, we didn't put it in like the, like the headline, you know, name of the beer, but it really does have a lot of oats in it. The oats lend a nice silky flavor to the beer, a nice mouthfeel, um, head formation, head retention. You know?
3: Absolutely. Josh kind of gave me, he wanted to do something special here, so he gave me the, he's like, order whatever you want. So um, I actually researched some, uh, one of our malt suppliers and we got all, um, English malt from this really old uh, malting company in England called Thomas Fawcett's where they actually still have guys pulling, when they're on the germination floor, they're actually turning the grain over with uh, rakes by hand rather than having a mechanized uh, screw auger to turn it over. So we got uh, this really good English roasted barley and chocolate malt, uh, oat malt, uh, some different crystal malts and we use flaked oats as well, so the total grist of the beer ended up being about 15% between the flaked oats and the uh, oat malt, because uh, we wanted to give the beer a really silky texture to begin with, uh, even before it went into the barrel, uh, and we are really hoping to give it some of that nice time in the barrel. To, so when it comes out of the barrel, it's really silky and smooth and, and roasty. Uh, the roasted barley from this place is just amazing. It, it's expensive as shit, but it's worth every every cent uh.
2: And it doesn't matter, but it's got my name on it, Jim. It never matters, right?
3: Exactly. Je- like I said, he never busts my chops on uh, uh, The cost of anything which is really nice so, unless I get really crazy, so a lot, rice hulls. a lot of rice hulls. Yes, but there,
2: there's nothing wrong. There's no shame in using rice hulls rice hulls you know like so there's the kernel of the rice and the outside is the hull and they they help to kind of loosen up the mash and help the the natural gravity straining of the wort the hot sugar water out of the mash and we use them in our in eugene the regular old eugene that we brew you know every couple weeks we use rice hulls in there just because it helps and it's efficient you know when you, when you get a stuck mash or a problematic mash it's just wasteful you're just leaving sugars behind you're wasting time The longer it takes in the brew house, you're going to eventually run into some other problems and it it stresses the brewers out. So we've learned our system over time and no shame in doing it. We actually, here's a great little side story. I'll digress for a second. We have this rooftop garden that we have at our brew pub and one of our party managers is running the rooftop garden this year. She took this long-term urban gardening class and she wanted to, we're using compost that's made from the spent grain. We send our spent grain at the brew pub to a local organic farm. They compost it, use it as the beds for their farm. We were like, hey, can we get some of that back for planting our rooftop garden? We got some of it back, and it's so rich and nitrogen rich. And uh, in order to make a good base for plants, you need a little something to fluff it up. You need a fluffer. And Jess, who who's running the garden, was like, I- I'm going to get some rice hulls. I think I'm going to go to like, the local homebrew shop and get some rice hulls. And I was like, see that right there? You know, That's like 1,000 pounds of rice hulls. Like, just take one of those and don't worry about it, I'll tell Jim so it doesn't mess up his inventory.
3: What the rice hulls do is when the mash goes up to the water tunnel, and we're separating the, uh, the grain particles and the husks from the nice clear wort, the rice hulls give the grain bed structure because when you use a lot of dark malts and problematic grains like wheat malt or oats or rye, you tend to, the mash gets really gummy and it tends to compact. And you have a hard time really extracting the nice sugars from the uh, from your grain bed, so your efficiency is down. And for us, not only is efficiency a problem, but time is a problem because nowadays we're you know we started doing two brews a week. Now we're doing 27 brews a week, so we don't have time for an eight-hour runoff. So I always tell everybody in the brew house, I'm like a bag of rice hulls costs sixteen dollars, so fucking put them in there because.
2: All right, so lastly, I just want to finish up on Death Star. What's interesting about this, bringing it back to our topic of conversation here, is the blend of bourbon barrels that we use. On most of the other beers, the the Bean Gene, we had two different types of barrels. This one actually uses four different types of bourbon barrels. Uh, We've got Old Forester, which are also from Brown and Foreman, who makes Woodford. Uh, We've got Two Heaven Hill varieties. You know, I guess more of you can, you know, Two Heaven Hills, you know, straight ahead High barley uh, varieties, which are Elijah Craig and Evan Williams. We talked about that, the same whiskey, just different ages of barrels. And then we've also got Old Fitzgerald, which is a high wheat, a high wheat or, a, or a high rye.
3: I don't I remember old, on that one. I
2: think Old Fitzgerald might be a, it's from Heaven Hill and it's a high wheat whiskey. So uh, where, where wheat is a high proportion of the mash, rye, wheat, and barley are the three malts that tend to be used by bourbon distillers. When they use a whole lot of rye, they call it rye. There's a whole lot of wheat, sometimes it's called a weeded bourbon. So uh, Old Fitzgerald is one of those. And this really, for us, I think exhibits what you get from a nice blend. The Heaven Hill varieties tend to be really hot and, and alcoholic. Um, the, the Old Forester tends to be sweet. And then the Old Fitzgerald with the wheat tends to be much more smooth. So,
3: It's fun for us brewers to get involved in blending because it's the, the winemakers that are the true masters of blending. Um, taking barrels. I mean, I've tasted, when I lived out in Paso Robles when I was at Firestone, um, I fell in love with drinking wine, and I love drinking wine, and it, it's a truly an art form, the blending. The same lot of grapes that are fermented in the same tank aged in different barrels, I mean, taste completely different, and it's really the winemakers that have the, uh, the mastery of the blending, and us as brewers, we're far behind that, but we're you know, we're we're trying to up the ante on that and make more complex products because what you really get with blending is complexity. Because um, when you have all your beers in one type of barrel, as they say, all your eggs are in one basket. Um, and it's the winemakers that know that certain barrels give you this character that you want and this aroma that you want. And you know, us as brewers are kind of we're 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 far behind the curve, but we're we're trying to catch up a little bit. And, uh, we're trying to learn from, uh, from those ladies and gentlemen uh, making and blending wine for sure. So I have to tell you what, I know Josh, I'm from Chicago,
1: uh, I used to run a beverage program at a very well-known bar in Chicago and this was the kind of stuff that always came to us and knowing Josh and still I don't have any of this in my collection because at the restaurant if I got a case it went to my customers <laughs> This was really rare, and so I want to send a special thank you to Josh and Jim for what they're doing, and moreover, for bringing this all the way out to Washington, D.C., so we can taste these things, because this is unbelievable, and uh, with all the blending that they're doing, they're ahead of the game, and so I want to thank them so much for coming out. This was fantastic. I'm sure they'll stick around if you have a question.
2: Yeah, we'll, we'll stick around for a while, and have and walk questions, safe.: questions, drink beers, and... Thank you all for coming. We appreciate it.
3: Yeah, please, any questions, feel free to shoot them at us. We'll do the best we can.
2: We're going to. Go for it, yeah. Okay,
3: well, actually, I went to uh, school. I went to business school in uh, the late 90s, mid to late 90s in in Chicago. I always grew up in Chicago and lived around the city in the south side. South side. South side went to Loyola University, uh, studied um, finance in the business school, and my few, last few years of college, I really actually got more excited about homebrewing um, than I was about what I was studying. But, so when I finished school, I graduated, and the Siebel Institute is right there conveniently in Chicago. So I told my mother, who helped me actually pay for my education, that, you know what, I think I, I'm really excited about brewing beer. I think I'm going to do that instead of be a stockbroker. And she's like, I really don't know what that means, but I'll, I'm going to support you on that. So my, my family was very, very supportive of me. They were happy that I finished school. Uh, so I, I didn't really take a lot of extensive classes at at the Siebel Institute. I did a, a two or a one-week operations course and then a two-week short course there. And, you know, just like any schooling, it's great to get background knowledge, but it's really where you you do your hands on brewing or cooking or anything in the world that you really, really, you know, learn your trade or your craft. So, how many years have you been uh, brewing, Jim? It is about almost 18 years now. So, I started at a small brew pub. Uh, called the Wine Keller back in the day in the suburbs of Chicago. I worked there for about six months, and that's right when Goose Island Brewing Company was starting their uh, production facility on Fulton Street where they do all their bottling and kegging. So I took a job as the uh, night shift brewer there, which was quite horrible. <laughs> terrible. and It was a terrible neighborhood. Um, everything was pretty terrible about it. Uh, However, I, you know, I knew it would be a great opportunity to really learn, and it, I don't know, I was really blessed because I ended up meeting some of the most awesome people in the world there, Josh included. Uh, guys that have gone on, I, I mean, some of our good friends now are the head of quality control at Lagunitas, at Bells. Um, our friend Finn Demink started um, Southern Tier Brewing Company. Matt Brindleson's out at Firestone, the best brewer in the world. Um, Nick Floyd's a good friend of ours, and I, I met him. He's actually the guy that trained me at the wine keller when I started. Um, and he was telling I, me... I predated
2: Nick at my first brewing job. I'll have you know.
3: Yes. So Nick was telling me back in the day, he's, Nick was telling me, he's like, I'm going to start this brewery called Three Floyds. I'm like, oh, that's cool, man. I'm like, where are you going to do that? And he's like, in Hammond. I'm like, Hammond, California? He's like, no, Hammond, Indiana. I'm like... Where I lived, I lived in Calumet City, so I lived just like the one town over from Hammond. And I'm like, dude, you're crazy. You're going to be brewing hoppy ales in Hammond, Indiana. Sure enough, he did. And they started in this little garage brewery. I mean, and it was just beyond homebrew scale what they were doing. And um, when he was working on that, I told him, I'm like, you know, I'm going to go work at Goose here for a while. And um, when you're ready and you're ready to expand your brewery, I live right here. So you just let me know. So, you know, we remained friends the entire time. I worked at Goose for about, the production brewery for about five years, and then um, when they moved their brewery to Munster, Indiana, a little bit of a larger facility from where they were at to start with, uh, I joined on with them in 2000, May of 2000, and I worked there uh, for six years, and that was a great experience because we were all really good friends, and we were doing some pretty cool things and some some things that people weren't really doing, and um, I guess it was maybe a little bit innovative, but you know, not so much innovative of what people have been doing on the West Coast. I mean, people were brewing big hoppy beers for sure, but his vision was always to brew these really really intense beers, and I fully supported it, even though I was not really a fan of the biggest styles of beer. But I'm like, we'll, you know, we'll brew whatever you want. You want to make these big. Intense, crazy beers, let's do it. And I remember the first time we brewed Dreadnought IPA at the new brewery, we really refined the recipe and got it really, really nice and clear and clean and just intensely hoppy. And this older gentleman came into the brewery, and he looked at me, and he's, he had a little glass of it, and he looked at me like I was fucking crazy. And he's like, he's like, you sell this? <laughs> and I'm like, Yeah. And he's like, people buy it? I'm like, yes, they do. He's, he, and he was just like mesmerized by it. But, you know, it was fun because we were brewing some really intense stuff and everyone in the local community wasn't quite there yet with, you know, their beer knowledge and, you know, their palate on drinking these really intense beers. But it was really fun because I almost felt like we were kind of just doing it, you know. No one was making shit for money and we were barely just keeping going, but, uh, you know, it, it was fun to really make some intense stuff and just just kind of, you know, be a little bit arrogant about it and, you know, just be like, you know what, this is what we're doing and we're going to, you know, we brew this beer because we like it. And it, I guess it was selfish to some point because, you know, we made what we, what we liked and what we wanted to do and I always respected him for his vision and, you know, because he was really at the forefront of that cuz I remember we were at the map room drinking beers in 1995 and every beer that we would taste he would just be like this is not this isn't hoppy enough and you know they were the hoppiest beers at the time and you know his goal is just to make some really really crazy intense beers so I mean you know they they deserve and he deserves all the credit in the world because I mean you know it was really his vision to do that and not only intense beers but intense graphics and artwork and things like that, so you know, i say they deserve all the success that they- uh, Are you
2: the only brewer of Three Floyds who's, who's never had a tattoo? Perhaps. Uh,
3: probably so, yes. I, I don't have any tattoos currently, but-
2: I just wanted to get that out in the open. Is anybody not familiar with
1: who they're talking about? Yeah.
3: But um, anyway- yeah. Cool. Three Floyds is actually very well known in in the Midwest, uh, in the Chicagoland area for making very, very intense beers and having very, you know, extremely sought after. I
2: think they're well known in like Finland and like Eastern Asia you know, at this point. How so. long is the line for Darkboard? Actually, they managed the line really well. This last couple of years festival was very well run and uh, kudos to them for getting the act together, hiring like a nice event company. As brewers, Jim didn't go down this year, but I went down this year, and we don't have to work. We get to just go down and enjoy it and have a good time and, and wave at all the people waiting in line to buy beer, because I don't, I don't wait in line for buy beer, but uh, it was it was actually really well run. And it was a beautiful day, and uh, you know, they're, they're really good. We have a good community of brewers that's rounded out here with like what it's all like to be a brewer, to own a brewery, you know, and it's like we have a especially in the Midwest and Chicago. We consider Three Floyds part of Chicago, even if they're in Indiana. It's a really good community of brewers. We get along, somebody runs out of you know, a bag of this or a bag of that, and they come on over to the brewery. It's like knocking on your door for a pound of sugar because I'm making a cake. Nope, <laughs> no problem. You know, we'll make it up to you later. And um, you know, we do collaborations. We have brewers' guilds. We get together, we do events together. Almost everyone is, already, is making an, as much beer as they can already, so it's not like we even compete you know, in the marketplace as much. We're all just trying to grow craft beer, uh, which is the Saber event is all about, and make fun beers that people want to drink. I guess if there's there's a good way to end this thing right there, that's just a great point, because that's why we got into this. Jim and I do it because it's fun. Um, You know, I started out as a home brewer. Jim did not start out as a home brewer. He did, all right. And uh, you know, so not everybody does that, but we did. We, before we opened, we brewed beers in my basement. A lot of our recipes were tried out there. We had months to kill brewing beers in the basement. So we do it because it's fun. If it wasn't fun, we'd probably both quit. I'm not sure I could do that, but you, you know, at, at this point, you know, it's we do. That's why we do it. It's a it's a passion. It's a drive. These beers are like the best representation of this. This is what we're, you know, the most proud of. It's what takes the most time, and um, yeah. Thanks for coming. Appreciate it.
3: Anyone has any questions, uh, any further questions, please feel free to ask, you know, regarding us or the beers or anything. But regarding myself, after I worked at Floyd's, uh, I went out to Firestone Walker and worked there for a couple years, and that's right where Josh was getting ready to start Revolution just to answer your question. So uh, that's when we really started uh, putting the the brewery together. He had some equipment that he had bought and it was kind of in a pile in the... is uh, In the brew pub, it's a 15-barrel system, and uh, we worked it pretty hard, quite honestly, from the very beginning. Uh, it's always been a very, very high-traffic, busy brew pub, which has been great. Um, and we just had our fourth-year anniversary, and we brewed a uh, Belgian quadruple for our fourth-year beer. And uh, talking about aging some beer in bourbon barrels, we uh, squirreled away six barrel bourbon barrels of our uh, Belgian quadruple, which were really really excited about. but yeah, that 15-barrel system um, crank I think we did probably about close to 2,000 barrels in our first year, 1,500 barrels at the brew pub. But at our production brewery this year, we're looking at doing about 55,000 barrels.: was. <laughs> it was. It it certainly was.
2: Jim, do you have an IMDB page? Uh,
3: Apparently, I do.
2: Friggin' Buddies was a movie, it was filmed at our brewery. Right when we first opened the big production brewery, Joe Swanberg is the director. It's a 100% improvised rom-com, and it's a mumblecore, is like the style of it. And it's cool, man, it's like it was, you know, Joe is a neighbor in the neighborhood. Who does this kind of thing and they were looking for a venue they had already written the concept for it and yeah this was it was a fun project we, w- we would not have any room for them to do it in the brewery today but when we first opened there was a lot of room there and so it was fun to do Olivia Olivia Wilde is super cool she drank beer the whole time Anna Kendrick Anna Kendrick was kind of pissy she's kind of pissy but and uh, Olivia was super cool Jake Johnson was awesome uh, Sudeikis Sudeikis was dynamite he came in. That was when they were first going out. He came in. He just walked on. And they gave him a role, which was the brewery owner. He was kind of like me, and he was kind of making fun of me the whole time in, in his role in the movie. But <laughs> it was really good. He came up with like the best improvised jokes. The, the funny
3: thing was, is there's one part of the movie where they gave him a beer to drink, but they screwed with him. So, because he was kind of gonna. Kind of, drink the entire beer in his scene, but they gave him a glass of our barrel-age, like a giant mug of our barrel aged quadruple from the brew. <laughs> but he, he chugged it down. Nice.
2: Thanks, Chris. You should Netflix it, yeah. You have to check it
3: out. It's a fun movie. It makes the brewery look really, really cool, and uh, it just kind of shows people's lives working in the craft brewing industry it's actually uh, as, jo- as josh said joe swanberg's a really cool guy and he lives in our neighborhood and he's really really into beer so he wanted to make sure that it showed the brewery as it as it is and not just you know something ridiculous or silly so and it was funny because um what was his name the actor from new girl jake jake, jake. jake johnson yes uh he was really he's a really cool guy and he wanted to make sure that he really he didn't want to make us look like you know silly or whatever but he when we were doing something he would actually come and watch what we're doing you know and you know whether we were dumping yeast out of a tank or adding malt to our hopper whatever he was doing and you know so we'd show him how to do it and then we'd step out of the way and he would do it and they really did a good job, and they were very respectful to us, and we appreciated that. And It was, it was kind of hard because we were really busy in the brewery at the time, and it was super hot in there, but um, they, they were very respectful to us, so it was really nice.
0: Thank you for listening to this recording from Savor 2014, brought to you by the Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio. You can find the rest of the salons from Saver 2014, as well as all of the salons from previous years of Saver, at craftbeerradio.com slash saver, or on craftbeer.com. Craft Beer Radio is a weekly beer podcast that you can listen to on iTunes or from our website at craftbeerradio.com.